Welcome to Coming Along Nicely. We're two brothers, Rich and Tim, who recently went back to school. Every week, we're discussing one thing we're learning in our classes, and we want to invite you to come along with us. Watching myself to not say it, and I'm I'm fumbling so bad. I don't want to give up hope, though, and say that these things can't be reversed. I can't even fathom the thoughts that went through your mind to get you to that point. It doesn't have to be permanent. It has to be unlearned. I wish I had a whiteboard <laughs> for this episode. This week... We talked about uh, the non-referential it and there, which... The non-referential it? Non-referential, yes. It and okay, there. Okay, it's going to be one of those weeks where I have no idea what you're talking about again, <laughs> which I love, which uh, I love. I don't know if it will be or not, or if it is, like once... It's, it's very easy to grasp once we get into it. So... Okay, okay. It's not something that I learned this week, but as people know, I'm in a writing class. And so we're kind of midpoint. We're not halfway through the semester, but we're, you know, in a few weeks. And so the professor just like took a period to like, Hey, let's pause and, uh, brush up on this. And she was essentially saying like, you know, you guys are all good writers, but I think that you will benefit to, uh, brush up on non-referential it and there. So what, what that is, I guess I'm trying to think of, of the way into, to describe it. It's when, (laughs) okay, so I just did it. Um, So that's not going to be funny to anybody else except for me, but (laughs) the, the non-referential it is when you start a sentence with the word it, but it doesn't describe anything. So, Hmm. uh, what, well, I won't get into what I just did, but if I say, you know, uh, Billy picked up the paper airplane and he threw it, it flew across the room. So that second sentence, it flew across the room. It, if you kind of circle that in your head and draw an arrow back to the airplane, Like, it's really easy to figure out what it is referring to. So that is a Mm -hmm. referential it because it refers to something, in this case, the airplane. A non-referential it is when you start a sentence with that word, but it isn't really clear what what it's pointing to. So what Hmm. I did earlier, I said, it's when you fill in the blank. And it's like, okay, well, well, what? is when you so man this is i wish i had a whiteboard (laughs) for this episode maybe we need to start doing (laughs) doing video but i'll give a couple more examples but i guess first i'll pause like does that make kind of sense i think so a referential it makes sense at least um there i'm clicking with you so a non-referential it is like Okay, so would it would it not would if I said like it's always cold this time of year, is that a non-referential or is it referential because the it is talking about the day or the weather, I'm assuming? So that would be non-referential. Because okay. Okay. like those might be the things that are in your mind 
And that might be what you're trying to communicate, but that's not anywhere in the sentence. Okay. Okay. I think I'm following. And so I will give a couple more examples, but kind of the, the thought behind or, or like what's, what's going on. The reason why these things are important is because sentences are made up of subjects and verbs. In other words, you know, sentences are made up of nouns and verbs, you could say. And Mm -hmm. man, this would be so much easier with a whiteboard. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) When you have a non-referential it that doesn't, doesn't point to anything, you are filling up one of the most important parts of your sentence with kind of a filler word. Mm. So avoiding this, uh, avoiding using it will like strengthen up your writing because it forces you as the writer or the speaker to like shore up what it is you're saying. So like pointing it back to you, you gave that example of like, it always rains this time of year and you're like, yeah, but I'm talking about like the weather. So you kind of connected the dots in your own head. That's what like you should do as a writer is in whenever you catch yourself starting a sentence with it, figure out like, okay, well, what I'm talking about is the weather. And so then the next step of that is instead of writing it dot, 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 you write the weather dot, dot, dot. And you're like, okay, well, the weather is always rainy this type of year. That's a much better sentence than it's always rainy this type of year, this time of year, excuse me. Yeah, it forces, if, if, if I'm understanding correctly, um, by refusing to use the non-referential it, the, the mental picture or the idea or the subject you're thinking of, like doesn't get lost in the fact that you're not referencing it. It's kind of like, um, have you ever heard the curse of knowledge? That yes. idea? Yeah. Yes. So for listeners who haven't heard of it, the curse of knowledge is when you become aware of something or when you become an expert at something, you begin to assume that other people are experts of that thing. Um, so like the more you study, the more you train, the more you exercise, the more you the more you become an expert at anything you assume that the knowledge you've gained is now common knowledge because you know it. Like you might not, if you sit there and think about it, like think that, but when you talk to other people, that's how we, we talk to them. So the curse of knowledge curses us with like, and you can correct, you might be able to say this better, Tim. I ran into it the most when I was speaking a lot, Mm -hmm. where when I was speaking to people, like groups of people, I would kind of catch myself looking at the room and be like, oh, no, the rest of you guys have no idea what I'm talking about. I'm assuming that you're following with me where I have to explain. I have to explain point one, two and three, even though I'm at point four. Mm -hmm. Um, So the curse of knowledge, once you become aware of it, allows you to kind of catch yourself from essentially saying things that are over people's heads which is why I think like, you know, there might be certain people 
who like are really into health or really into fitness or really into politics or really into whatever. And if you're not at their level, they might seem really like condescending or they might seem like you might be like, I have no idea what they're talking about. That might be because they're forgetting the curse of knowledge. And instead of talking down to your level, which sounds bad to say, to bring your knowledge up, they're just talking where they're where they're at and everything's going over your head. Um, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think the the quintessential example of the curse of knowledge, at least for me, is doctors. So mm, the whole yep. image of a doctor walks into the room and they're like, it's not good. This and this and this and that. And the only thing you heard is it's not good. Nothing else they said makes sense. Yes, that's a really good way of putting it. So, yeah, this is definitely, I would say, similar. I see how they're connected. I think that with the non-referential it and there, the point is clarity. So if you do this incorrectly, you know, kind of in air quotes, incorrectly, people are still going to understand what you're talking about generally. They're not going to be completely confused but your point isn't going to come across as strongly. So let me think of a, another example. Like, let's say you, Rich, are writing a research paper. And for whatever reason, this happens a lot where we're in like academic writing. You'll take, you'll take the thesis, the most important point of your paper and that is the one sentence that you'll use the the non-referential it or there, which is just it's ironic because, you know, you're doing it in the most important place. But anyway, let's say you were writing a paper about school counselors and why there need to be more school counselors because the ratios are off and students aren't getting care and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. The thesis of your paper, there, there's two different ways to do it. One would be there need to be more counselors. It's fine. Everybody's going to understand, you know, what that means. But if you say students need more counselors, students deserve more counselors by forcing yourself to define the subject of the sentence, it's going to force you to come up with a clear verb and as a result, the whole message gets across better. So that's like the A-B comparison. Mm. There need to be more counselors See, versus students deserve to have a counselor. See, and I can, as you're saying this, I can think of all the papers that I've, I, I don't know why it's so easy to do this the more you talk about it. But I've, um, I've written so many papers where I'm pretty sure I use arguments such as like, it's so tragic mm -hmm. that kids aren't getting the mental health help that they need. And now that you say that, like, what is so tragic? Right. I, I'm saying that there's kids in need, but I'm losing the clarity of a sentence, especially in your point, a thesis statement. Like, it loses that crystal clarity. I could say the... Ratio of counselors to students in 
a time of life where mental health is at a crisis point is tragic. That that says a lot more and says it more clearly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. And we do it all the time. Like this episode, particularly, I feel like I'm stumbling over myself more than I ever have. And it's not because it's not because I don't know what I'm talking about. It's because, okay, right there. I just did it again. The last two. It's because. Yeah. I just did it twice in a row. I'm catching myself doing it so much. And speech is, you know, colloquially, it's fine. Like, I'm not a grammar Nazi. And I don't think that, you know, some people get way over the top with trying to either police themselves or police others. Either way, I'm not I'm not that way. But when it comes to writing, you want to be clear because you lose you lose the voice, vocal inflections, you lose body language. In writing, mm-hmm. you only have the words and that much more so in, you know, we're using the examples of academic writing, but also fiction writing. In all of these, you need your words to be airtight because that's all you have so it's for clarity and also you see right there i just it's for clarity yeah i feel like maybe i'm thinking too like I, i feel like our culture says or at least me like i grew up and still will say like it's crazy like isn't it so weird? Like, I, I I feel like I say that all the time, like mm-hmm. little throwaway phrases like that when referring to something. Yeah. Or like there's something to be said for blank. That's yes. You know. Yep. And I think that that is that's something I've noticed, too, that a lot of times when we do this, it tends to have more of a down to earth feeling and more of a kind of homey homey tone i guess and so i think that you can do it It, it's like anything else you know the rules are there to be broken but i think realizing what effect it gives will help you apply that so so the example of the thesis statement of your paper no you never want to you never want to have something non-referential there but if you're writing, if you're writing, you know, a I think I did this on the Substack not long ago. I forget the exact example, but I was writing something. And then the last sentence, I, I caught myself that I had a non-referential it. I was like, it's just blank. It's just wrong. And I was going to I was going to change it. But I was like, you know what? I actually kind of like that because I've been speaking very formally so i kind of like changing it up so all of it is to say it's not incorrect it's not incorrect but there it is yeah what i was gonna say is i think that we should (laughs) if we had the time we should go through and do like a ding like a counter every time (laughs) we do it but i don't know if, if we'll do that or not but anyway yeah you're not breaking the rules by by using it, and actually, like I said, people will fill in the blanks. They'll understand. But if you want to be clear, you want to, you need to 
to watch out for doing that. So let me let me give one more little example, and then we can can move on. So like I said, most of the time, you're not going to be making any mistakes. But actually, sometimes if you use something non-referential as your subject, you actually will be very unclear in what you're saying. So if I said, for example, I'm sitting outside in my study space, the wind begins to blow, a dark cloud comes overhead, I hear a noise that I think might be a snake. It's very scary. Well, okay, what's very scary? Because mm. I just listed three things that it could be. Or it could be the mood is very scary. The scene is very You know what I'm saying? So, again, if yeah, like you... the combination of those things. Right. If you read that in a book, you are going to get the picture of what's being described. But l- that's an example where you could definitely be clearer by by fixing it sorry let me take that back you'll always be clear by not using the non-referential but in certain cases you'll actually be misunderstood you won't you aren't able to be misunderstood you aren't gosh i'm i'm watching myself to not say it and i'm (laughs) i'm fumbling so bad but that goes back to what i said earlier which is in speech it's one thing and in writing it's another Ding, ding. Yeah. I think you said earlier, like inflection, inflection does a lot. Yes. Um, Cause you can almost like, I'm thinking like uh, the little I know of, of sign language, like they'll kind of like, as they're signing, they'll put certain things in certain spaces in front of them as referential points. Mm. So that like, if they refer back to it later, they'll like refer to this spot and you're like, Oh, that's, you know, my great aunt Susie. Oh, that I have um, seen that. And I think that is maybe, interesting. Yeah, maybe verbally. I think we do the same thing with inflection. Um, where I, or at least like we have enough inflection that it does it like you can do like it's crazy like that. That if I'm talking to certain people, that could mean something um, or it could be like it's crazy. Like there's just a bunch of different things bunch of different ways that we can use inflection to do what can't be done in writing. Unless I had this crazy idea. Uh, I'll give it to you. And if you want to turn it into anything, if it sparks inspiration, could you use like italics, bold face and other fonts in a short story where everything's written in the same font, except when you use a like non-referential it but when you use the non-referential it, the it has like a different font or something to it. And you kind of learn through reading the story what those it's or the reader comes to their own conclusion of what those different it's are. But they're different it's that might not be as cool as I think it is. It might just be really gimmicky. That could be it could be something. I mean, it is kind of gimmicky, but I don't know if that's like a bad thing like that's the kind of thing that my one professor who teaches literary theory is like all over different kind of meta storytelling and things like that what what you made me think of is even just the book it 
by Stephen King. I haven't read it, but I'm I'm wondering like is that about what what is it? Is it the name of a character? Is it so there there definitely are probably interesting things you could do with that. Hmm. Yeah, probably the non-referential it probably works best in fear statements. Like like because like the reader will always imply their own fears on something fearful, if that makes sense. Which I think was kind of, I think that was kind of the point of it. I'm not a huge like fan. I think I've seen the movies, but like it could transform and change its shape into like your, like a person's biggest fears or something. Yeah. Well, you're probably, so it kind of, you're probably onto something because like I said, using it or there that way, it's more general. It's less precise. So, yeah, you're probably right that if you're trying to scare somebody, that might be a good way to, you know, there was a creaking in the floorboards. You know, that's that's going to scare you more than saying the rabbit that got out of its cage made a noise <laughs> when it stepped on the. So, yeah, there. that's another good example of like where you might want to do it on purpose. Hmm. Interesting. There it is. There it There's is. There's the interesting counter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we should we should do a counter for that too. But yeah, uh, what did you? I'll toss it over to you. What did you learn this week? And that keeps with the tradition that when one of us says interesting, it's time to move on. <laughs> this week, um, my reading in the DSM was on uh, conduct disorders, so like disruptive impulse control and conduct disorders. That was one section. Then after that, it was substance abuse disorders, which there was so much reading in substance abuse disorders. Uh, and then I'm still halfway in the neurocognitive disorders, uh, which is uh, dementia. In earlier versions, it would have been called dementia. Um, it's still called dementia in some places. Um, but I think, man, it feels like I read it forever ago. Uh, but what stood out to me the most was when I was looking at like the, the conduct disorder section, um, which is like intermittent explosive disorder, which a lot of the stuff you kind of, you hear it and you can kind of guess what it is like oppositional, oppositional defiance disorder. Um, and then conduct disorder, I guess if I had to explain it, if you have like a scale, it's like oppositional, uh, Oppositional conduct disorder, um, then intermittent explosive disorder, and then conduct disorder after that. And actually, these disorders have to be very early on in life. Uh, I think conduct disorder can start. Yeah, yep, I had to double check. So it's pretty much adolescence and childhood um for the conduct disorder conduct disorder man why does it have to be the hardest word for me to pronounce today conduct um but if someone's older than 18 it can more likely be an antisocial personality disorder um 
I've never heard of. And what I found so interesting. Well, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say, I've never heard of any of those before. They're all really, they're mostly seen in young children. Yeah. So I don't think they're as like, like I think for oppositional, um, it's like children who are, maybe they have to be older than five, but less than 10. Does that mean that whoever, you know, the kids who have this, does that mean that they grow out of it? Or does this disorder, if it's retained, kind of morph into something else? It can as as time goes on. So I was wrong. Um, oppositional is five years or younger. And I think conduct disorder is older than that. Um and also it's way more if someone had oppositional um oppositional disorder and then like developed into conduct disorder with age their symptoms are going to be way more like severe like they might be way more callous or way more like they have they might have less of a less empathy um, and conduct disorder is like aggression to people, animals, destruction of property, deceitfulness or theft, like serious violations of rules. Um, they only have to have three of the following 15 criteria in those four areas. So there's a lot of different types, but um, individuals who had oppositional or intermittent explosive disorder, and then that develops into conduct disorder, those individuals will have the more severe versions of conduct disorder. Um, And then it might even turn into like antisocial personality disorder if it's not treated after that. Um, Which is really, I think the thing that was really sad to me is like having worked with kids and junior high students. And that's where a lot of this develops, uh, this disorder specifically. Um, I was just kind of wondering what could be done for resilience. Um, like, I think I'm looking right here that like the prevalence, uh, let's see here. Yeah. The lifetime prevalence in the United States for conduct disorder was, about 12% in men and 7.1% in women. Um, And that appears to be fairly consistent across various countries. Um, The rates rise going from childhood into adolescence. And yeah, once again, like I said, if they had it, if they had a oppositional disorder prior to adolescence, it's more likely for them to have a conduct disorder. Um, and like there are factors that go into it that might be outside of people's control, but no, no, not even then. Cause I'm looking at the factors and we're, and children of parents who have like depressive disorders or schizophrenia or ADHD or severe, severe alcohol use disorders, like their kids are more at risk to have these disorders, but even like going back it's really easy to look at conduct disorder and see the symptoms of it and not to like curse of knowledge, you guys, but just once again, this, the sections are aggression to people, animals, destruction of property, deceitfulness or 
theft, and serious violations of rules. I think by the time an adolescent gets to that point and we see these things happening, wider culture can be very dismissive of it and just be like, oh, that's just the troubled kid. Like, that's just, you know, oh, you darn kids, stop doing what you're doing. But more likely than not, it wasn't just that they were a kid. Um, Like, this started earlier on when they were, like, five years and younger with like oppositional defiant disorder, which is just like often loses temper, is often touchy or easily annoyed, uh, might argue with authority figures, might deliberately annoy others. Um, and those things start because of like lack of caregiver attention, because of stressful things going on at home. But I was really just trying to think like with how much access we have for having kids in school systems like what i don't know i was probably thinking way too big for my lack of experience into like what what could be done resiliency wise to help out kids who either have or at or are at risk for oppositional defiant disorder and helping curb those survival tendencies that are causing them to be angry, to be easily annoyed, to have to, to have to be overly protective or to have to be overly aggressive in order to create a protective sphere. Um, how can we help them learn that that's not what they have to do so that when they get older and develop into like adolescence, they don't form those conduct disorder like disorders, I guess. Yeah, I think these, like this set of disorders that you're talking about, they're a little harder for me to wrap my head around because okay. when you're when you're talking about aggression towards animals, maybe that one less than less than the rest, but like being irritable, kind of in essence, overreacting to like, at least the way you, what you were reading off there, that kind of just sounds like being like a kid. Mm -hmm. So it's harder to wrap my head around what makes a five-year-old have that disorder, which also makes it harder to wrap my head around the question you're asking of what do we do to help this? Gotcha. Um, I guess I would say for for oppositional defiant disorder, where I'm talking about like a pattern of like irritable or angry behavior, um, anything I'm reading out like the DSM is like take with the assumption of it's causing like clinical distress, like it's it's above normal behavior to the point of like. Um, it's causing distress either in the individual or more likely for kids that old. Um, it's occurring in multiple uh, social contexts. So maybe at school and at home, uh, maybe I mean, it wouldn't make sense with work colleagues unless someone's bringing their kid to work. Um, but it's just, yeah. And also the behavior occurs on more on most days. Like, it's not just something that's happening, like, 
maybe once a week or a couple times, you know, a week. It's it's behavior that's happening every day, which that's where it's more of like a dysfunction. Like you shouldn't, you know, be angry and resentful for most of the day or, you know, deliberately blaming others for most of the day. Um, that's especially in like a, a kid. That's where it comes from more of like being, being a disorder and can develop into disorders as the kid gets older that are more and more intense. Uh, Cause it doesn't seem like that big of a deal when a kid's just angry or a kid's just annoying or a kid's just, you know, irritable. Like it doesn't seem as big of a deal then. And those kids naturally are less, I think less prone to get attention because of their personality, uh, because of like their angry, like irritable nature or even overly annoying nature. So strangely enough, like it kind of becomes this like spiral or like self-fulfilling prophecy where like they continue to push away others, um, which might even be maybe what they want but that just continues to turn into more and more. Well, hence the, I guess dysfunction, dangerous behaviors. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I guess that clears it up for me a little bit. Like that brings it back to however many weeks ago, just what you were talking about with disorder, meaning disorder isn't just when something happens once, but it is when, you are out of order, like out of normal function. Cause like, for example, if you were a fourth grade teacher or, or for example, both of us, we worked with younger age groups at the church. You kind of knew what the range of normal behavior for kids was like every kid is going to have days where they're not paying attention. Every kid is going to, be a little ornery sometimes or test the limits, even like the best kid, whoever you think like the best behaved kid is, they're going to come in sometimes and they might be a little off. But what you're talking about is yeah. when you're like, you're, you've broken out of that range. Yes. Like I remember yeah. one like kid this, who, go ahead. well, just like thinking back to, it was like third or fourth grade or something. There was this kid in my class and his name was Tim and Mm. he showed up in school on like the first day. I'm pretty sure it was fourth grade and he was in my class. He also rode or no, he didn't ride my bus. I'm sorry, but he, it, it left such an imprint in my mind. How, how little he behaved And just as a kid, I remember thinking it was so like, it's one of those things where you're like, man, I would love, like you think about breaking the rules. You think about like, wouldn't it be crazy if I did this? But he was just on a whole different plane where I was like, I can't even fathom the thoughts that went through your mind to get you to that point. And that's all as a fourth grader. And anyway, Mm. he only lasted at our school for like a week. Like he came in, there was kind of a reputation that like he's been to a couple other schools and it's probably not going to work at this one either. And that ended up being correct because he was gone a week later. 
I make, I say all of that to make the point you were making of, then it becomes like a pattern. That's like a spiral that you can't break out of. Yeah. Yep. And like a lot of the spiral is like, I don't want to be naive to what goes on at home. Cause that is like massive for really any age group, even up in the high school, like that, that sets a lot of like patterns um, for how someone is going to learn to be a human and to survive. And that is a big part of what goes into these disorders as well. Um, so I don't know. I don't want to, I don't want to give up hope though and say that these things can't be reversed, um, which first off, they wouldn't be in a therapy book if there was no chance of them being reversed. I mean, obviously we can work on them, but, but even just like culturally, uh, like for oppositional disorder, one thing it was saying is they are more likely to be the targets of bullying and also to bully others. Mm -hmm. Um, so it just, you know, it forms that, I don't know, you don't, you don't get a lot of uh sense of security You've got maybe the two versions. There's multiple versions, but you got the two clumps of like the kid who, you know, is just really messed up because of home stuff and they become more bitter and resentful and angry. And that turns into outwards aggression towards other people. But then you could also have, you know, the kid who is. Uh, maybe they're like more the class clown and they kind of annoy others and they actively like refuse to comply with requests from authority figures. And because of that, they end up getting, you know, made fun of, or they kind of get pushed out because of it. And they're just doing what they've learned to do to survive. Right. You know, like at home there, there's that distance or that aggression at home that kind of causes that, that spiral and a lot of these kids too also have attention deficit disorder, which doesn't help them at all either in the school system because that's a, you know, it requires an amount of patience to work with those kids. Um, well, trying to find the bright side of it, if that's what we're trying to do, it doesn't sound to me that the root cause of this is that much different than any number of other disorders that adults get into if it's a coping mechanism or if it's a defense or it, it, it fight or flight, you know, like that's not, that doesn't have to be permanent. Does it? I don't think so. It doesn't have to be permanent, but I think it definitely has to be unlearned. Um, and I don't know if everyone would say it's fight or flight. I think that's kind of more the camp I'm in right now, um, which I guess, if I'm correct, it's called that belief might come from a like a theory of counseling called internal family systems or internal family therapy. So like family therapy, the sorry, I'm bouncing all over the place. Family therapy is the idea that like. You've got multiple members in a family and enacting change in one of them will enact change in the rest of them. So like, you know, a kid, for example, isn't just acting the way they are solely because of themselves. Like they are part of a family system that is either inhibiting 
or allowing or provoking that behavior. So you'd want to treat the entire family. However, maybe you can only get two out of four people in the family to come to therapy. Although you'd like to have all four, family systems therapy, like, understands that even if you can start enacting positive change in two of the four family members, that's going to have a change on the whole system, which will lead to a more beneficial output. So that's family therapy. Internal family or internal family systems, internal family therapy is essentially just imagine that like the family is like inside of you. So it's not quite like a multiple personalities or like dissociative disorder. Um, but like, you know, you have like your conscience, you have the part of yourself that wants to keep you on track and organized and can sometimes be more critical. But then you have the other part of you that like, is more of like a caretaker and wants to like allow you to de-stress and cool down and not like hate yourself. Like there's these different parts of you and you have to be able to get the parts to communicate and coexist. Well, um, I think that idea of fight or flight might be more closely tied to an idea like that, where the kids operating out of this sense of survival or the sense of self-preservation that is being driven by this internal system that they've had to kind of develop, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. That kind of also calls back to, I think last week you were talking about like dividing up the different parts of yourself or, or acknowledging the, the different parts of yourself that there are. And you're talking about, uh, the internal systems or whatever it's called is about kind of getting them to communicate with each other, getting them to function yes. work as a team. Yes, exactly. Um, so I think maybe the more cavalier part of my heart that like did junior high ministry for forever. Um, I think after reading about like just all these different disorders that can affect young kids and seem to have such a social element it makes me want it makes me like kind of want to dream up or work towards some sort of like system or program or culture trend where people kind of just can understand like where these kids are coming from so that they can be given the space and the grace needed to unlearn these survival systems before it continues to develop into something even more harmful. You know, we can't just like shrug our shoulders and be like, well, that's just this kid. They're just angry. Like that's just this kid that they're just the jokester or no one really likes them. Like if we like, if we just give them up to that fate, then yeah, they're just going to continue to become that and potentially even worse. Like, where where are these kids going to get caught in the meantime? Where are they going to exist? Where they can kind of get, like... I feel like every week at the end of the episode, I'm just going on some weird soapbox about how are we going to reach these kids? <laughs> um, so, Gotta I don't know. I'm just going to step off the soapbox because you've all heard it before. <laughs> well, I think... Actually, I guess I don't know what I think. I started saying... 
I opened up my mouth and hoped that the words would come out. But I think I wonder what what the like you're saying I wish there was some way to to have more people have an understanding and I don't know if that is the dilemma like being completely uninformed about this but I remember as a kid I remember teachers and principals and stuff saying to kids who are misbehaving like saying all of the right things like saying all the stuff that you're saying right now but kind of the unfortunate reality of what we're talking about is like the kid isn't in a place to hear it because of this dysfunction or disorder or whatever and that is the spiral but i also think that like i'm i'm not attempting to just like shrug it off but I just feel like I've heard so many stories of people, of adults who are like describing like, man, I was such a knucklehead. I was this, I was that. All the things you're saying. And I think that people sometimes do find a way out of it. Like, I don't think it has to be uh, a death sentence. It might be difficult. No, but- true. Yeah, the prevalence rate is only for conduct disorder. It's only 12% in men and 7% in women. So like, it's not like it's like some kind of epidemic. Um, and sometimes, you know, people getting out of that home environment or people getting away really does allow them to kind of restart and try something new and relearn things. Um, I think for me, it just was that, you know, it's that touchy spot because I worked with junior hires for so long that it kind of like, triggered all that old like oh man i just want to help these kids and if i see kids like this i want to give them that space um right well i mean that's why you're yeah, doing i, I guess you're I, doing true 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 i can just remember like i don't know just the, the times where you'd have like the students who really don't want to be there um really don't want to talk to you really don't want to, you know, engage with you or whatever. Um, because they're so used to, they're so used to the spiral, you know, they get dropped off in another room full of adults who are already predisposed to not like people with their certain personality or someone who's more oppositional. So someone's going to come up and they're going to be their autopilot oppositional self because that's their survival technique. And then the spiral starts all over again, where they then get ignored. Um, But if you kind of wade into that with them and you don't try to like change them, because people do that all the time. Um, People point out all the aggression all the time. If you're kind of just there with them and you're able to, I don't know, listen to their jokes or be cynical with them. Just be around, remember their names, be happy when you see them again. Like those little tiny things do go a long way. They don't go a long way quickly, you know, but they go a long way. And I can remember several students who I only ever met them like a couple of times. And I just was nice to them. And then I saw them like, like maybe they came up to JV like five whole times. This wasn't some deep relationship. But then when you see that kid later on, like, 
and they're in high school or they're an adult and you still like remember them. I don't know. It just it has this like shedding effect where you can tell like. I don't know. The conversations seem like the conversations you have with that kid who's only been there five times seem way deeper than some of the conversations you've had with kids who come in every week just because that kid's like, oh, this person actually like cared for a little bit. So, yeah, I don't know. the whole like I think there's like uh, it, people don't remember what you say. They remember how you made them feel that whole kind of thing. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so I don't know. Maybe maybe it's not something that can be done with like a system or a culture thing, but it just makes me want to. I don't know. It makes me want to do something, which I guess you said it best. That's why I'm going into what I'm going into. Yeah. And that is the episode. Thanks again for listening. Hope you guys learned something new. So excited you guys are here joining us. I know that that sounds so canned, but seriously, we're both excited about being in school. And if you guys can get some enjoyment out of that as well, hey, that's an added benefit. We'll see you guys on the next one after we get done with some more homework.